Welcome to the OIS Podcast, where you get candid conversations with the leaders and drivers of ophthalmic innovation. And now, here's our host, Tom Salemi. Hey, this is Tom Salemi. Thanks for joining us on OIS Podcast number 214. We're going to dip into the gene therapy well again. Last week, we got the Wall Street perspective on the acquisitions of Spark and Nightstar by Roach and Biogen, respectively. We spoke with David Nirengar, and he kind of gave us a sense as to what those acquisitions mean for the business of ophthalmology. Today, we're not going to follow the money quite as closely. Instead, we're going to talk to Jay Duker. Jay, of course, is the director of the New England Eye Center. He's also a uh, professor of ophthalmology at Tufts Medical School. And Jay will share just how much or how little Luxterna, the FDA-approved gene therapy, has impacted his practice. And I was surprised by the answer, but perhaps you won't be. But we'll also talk some business because in addition to treating patients, Jay is also co-founder of a gene therapy company called Hemera Biosciences that's running clinical trials for the treatment of geographic atrophy and wet AMD. But before we begin this conversation, I want to remind you that OIS at ASCRS is happening on May 2nd in San Diego. If you haven't registered yet, please go to OIS.net to sign up. Now let's get into our conversation with Jay Duker. I last spoke with Jay, well, I spoke actually for the first time with Jay in 2015 prior to the Luxtern approval. And he, at the time, had anticipated that FDA approval would bring new energy to gene therapy. So let's pick up the conversation there. Well, I think it, it boosted the gene therapy space, not only in ophthalmology, but also uh, within systemic disease as well. Uh, the uh, manufacturing uh, control and chemistry aspects of gene therapy are very difficult, uh, and they're really uh, not uh, they're they're not based upon simple pharmacodynamics like we're used to with other drugs that are delivered intravitreally or orally or systemically. And as a result, a whole new set of rules around uh, processing, safety, longevity had to be created uh, in order to obtain FDA approval for these gene therapy products. And Spark showed that it could be done. And, and done successfully, not only to meet the FDA requirements, but now actually clinically in practice with the delivery of uh, essentially curative gene therapy to the eyes of, of dozens of patients now. So it, it was, it was in, in a sense, proof of concept, but not just concept. It was proof of the ability to commercialize this type of therapy for patients. How is Spark's approval, how is Luxterna's availability uh, impacted your treatment of patients? Is it something you've you've gone to? Is it something you're you're seeing used frequently? Uh, no, uh, no. And, and the simple answer is inherited retinal dystrophies, such as uh, retinitis pigmentosa and rare forms of RP, which is what Sparks Products Luxterna is is approved for, are extremely rare. They're ultra rare diseases. And so the average physician is never going to see a case of RP65 disease in his or her career. Uh, in addition, it doesn't make sense for every retina specialist to have access to these uh, medications because the surgery, the subretinal surgery to place the medication into the area where it needs to go is not straightforward. 
uh, subretinal surgery, like any surgery, has a learning curve. So there'll be a limited number of centers in the world that will be approved to do the therapy. Uh, and I believe Spark's estimate is that there's between 1,000 and 2,000 patients in the entire United States that are uh, eligible for the therapy just based on genetics. And that doesn't mean that those patients can be identified or that they'll uh, want to have the therapy performed. So you're talking about probably a, an entire base of just several hundred, maybe a thousand patients at the most in the U.S. who are going to get this therapy over the lifetime of, of the therapy. So no, uh, it hasn't directly impacted my practice. Uh, I, I will personally not be performing uh, subretinal surgery for inherited retinal diseases. Uh, but for the patients who have gotten it, and I believe the number is between 30 and 40 patients who have been treated at this point, it's, it's, a, it's an incredible game changer. I mean, you, you hear the stories of, of not just halting the disease, but some of these children are actually seeing better following the surgery, able to see things that they had never seen before. So uh, it really is a game-changing therapy for the patients and, and also for the ability of the doctors who are actually doing the therapy. Oh, that's great to hear. And uh, that is very rare. I, I know it's rare, and you hear the word rare, but uh, I didn't realize it was as rare as, uh, as that. So Ultra rare, as they say. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for the perspective. Well, and hence, Tom, when, when you really think about it, this becomes a real discussion of, of how do you commercialize a therapy uh, when it's so rare. And, and that's really what uh, the companies will struggle with as, as more and more gene therapies for inherited retinal diseases become a reality. Okay, so Luxterna itself may only help a handful of patients. But Jay wanted to make it clear that other gene therapy products, including those being pursued by Hemera, don't necessarily have as tight a focus. Let's listen. You can think of, of gene therapy in the eye in two different ways. The first is the classic way, which we've discussed already, uh, in, in augmentation or replacement for a faulty gene. A uh, child is born with a bad RPE65 gene, and the gene therapy replaces that with a good one, and the child can see. In fact, I think it's much more likely that the average retina specialist and the average ophthalmologist in the next decade will be performing gene therapy, but not for an ultra-rare disease. Much more common diseases where we're using gene therapy essentially as a long-term drug delivery system. That's the way to think about it. So if you can induce the retinal cells to produce, say, an anti-VEGF protein or compound uh, long-term, you can reduce or eliminate the number of anti-VEGF injections. So the first uh, concept to think about is that what Himera is doing is using gene therapy just as a drug delivery platform. If you've got a chronic disease like dry macular degeneration or wet macular degeneration, that's going to require probably a lifetime of therapy. And you'd like to start it on patients who are still able to see well. That means you're going to start to treat patients that might be diagnosed in their, at age 70 and have a 20-year lifespan. And when you think about drug delivery the way we do it now, monthly or every other month injections, and you think about injecting both eyes with a chronic disease for the next 20 years, that really becomes daunting. Uh, and so even if you have such a compound, and we do in the sense of the anti-VEGFs, it's very difficult to maintain that. So gene therapy offers the promise of reducing the treatment burden. So where does Hemera fit into all of this? We'll find out in a minute. 
But first, I want to let you know that OIS at ASCSRS is happening on May 2nd in San Diego. Once again, go to OIS.net to register. If you are a gene therapy company, we're not going to have any uh, gene therapy related discussions there, but you're invited to uh, present at our upcoming OISs, including OIS at ASRS and OIS at AAO. You can find out more information about those also at OIS.net. Now, Jay Duca will tell us what Hamera is after. The company was founded in, in 2010. It raised $3.75 million in a Series A in 2013. It's targeting the complement cascade to make it easier to deliver drugs. It uses a protective protein called CD59 that is normally found on the plasma membrane of cells, and it blocks the membrane attack complex. And Jay will explain what that means. Hamera is a, a company that's developing uh, gene therapy for the eye, and our first target is the complement cascade. Uh, you may be aware that most of the genes that have been implicated in macular degeneration are genes of the complement cascade. Uh, and so there is quite a bit of evidence, uh, human research, genetic evidence, that uh, an overreaction of the complement cascade has some responsibility for both dry and wet macular degeneration. So what we're doing is producing a naturally occurring protein. It's called CD59 or protectin. Uh, that is a membrane-bound protein that exists on all our cells that prevents our cells from uh, being damaged by the complement system that is constantly being produced within the, within the eye and within the body. Uh, so CD59 blocks what's called membrane attack complex or MAC. Mem membrane attack complex is responsible for uh, and high levels for, for destroying cells. And it's certainly possible and something that we believe that membrane attack complex is responsible for the death of the cordial capillaris that occurs early on in macular degeneration. So what we're doing is inducing cells within the eye. Uh, via an intravitreal injection of an AAV2, that's the type of virus, to make soluble CD59 to block the complement system. And the hope is that we will be able to slow down or perhaps even stop progression of both geographic atrophy and wet macular degeneration. Well, that's a bold and a promising objective for Hemera, but will it work? They're running a couple of phase one trials. First is HMR1001 for patients with dry AMD and geographic atrophy and HMR-1002 for patients with a new onset of wet AMD. Let uh, Jay give us an update on those clinical trials, and a little later on, he'll uh, hint at where the company is with phase two. We have uh, completed enrollment in a phase 1b trial of severe geographic atrophy. We enrolled 17 patients. We have a year follow-up on those 17 patients. It was a typical dose escalation type study that the FDA requires for gene therapy. In other words, we did three patients at a very low dose that we knew was not going to be successful. As long as we had safety, we then went on to three patients with a medium dose and we got safety with that. And so we went on three patients with a high dose and then enrolled an additional eight patients with that high dose. So first of all, all phase one trials are really to measure safety and our safety was really impeccable. We had a 23% rate of very mild detritus, which was easily treatable with steroids, topical steroids. Uh, we had no other safety signal. Uh, with respect to efficacy, 
Uh, first of all, none of the 17 eyes that we treated within a year converted to wet macular degeneration. So that was one worry uh, because of the appellus data in phase two, where there was quite a bit of conversion uh, to wet during the study. So we had no patients convert. With respect to visual acuity, again, probably not the primary endpoint that we'll look at with geographic atrophy, but it was heartening to see that of the uh, patients we treated, the mean visual acuity was only one letter worse after a year. Uh, and the natural history of geographic atrophy is about five letter loss within a year. Ultimately, what the FDA wants us to measure is the uh, rate of progression of the geographic atrophy. And since we didn't have a control group, it was a phase 1B study, we had to use historical controls. And based on historical controls, if you took uh, just the high-dose treated patients, we had a, between a 23% and 25% reduction in the growth of the ge geographic atrophy based on historical controls. So the study's going to go out to 18 months. We should be able to report the 18-month data to see if this trend continues. But so far, that's looked good. Uh, on to wet macular degeneration, we know the VEGF plays a, a, a critical role in wet macular degeneration, and anti-VEGFs have really uh, been remarkable improvements in our ability to treat this disease. But there is evidence also that the complement system may play a role also. So in doing that, we, we knowing that, we decided to also do a study of wet AMD. It's a phase 1B. It's currently enrolling in two centers. We've enrolled, I think, at last count, 12 patients, I believe. The study opened up last fall. Uh, the first patient, I think, we just have about six months follow-up on. And the way the, uh, the wet macular degeneration study's been done is uh, we give all patients at entry, and these are newly diagnosed previously untreated wet AMD patients. We give them a shot of bevacizumab, and then a week later, we do a single injection of our product, the uh, AAV2-releasing soluble CD59, and then we go into just a PRN, treat as needed, and there's uh, a, you know pretty good um, parameters around when we re-inject. Now, uh, so far at least, that first patient uh, is uh, at five-month visit has not received another injection. Uh, we have several other patients out three to four months. Uh, I believe uh, one or two of them have received re-injections. But again, we, we haven't collected all the data yet. In, in this study, the endpoint of this study is at one year is to look at the number of injections that these patients have received to see if it looks historically like we're reducing the number of injections. So at the beginning, I think people were thinking, you know, gene therapy, wet macular degeneration, if you're going to take the cost and expense of doing this, you need to eliminate anti-VEGF injections altogether. And I think our thinking has evolved a little bit because since we're doing intravitreal, not subretinal, which requires vitrectomy and the risk around that, as long as we can maintain visual acuities and have a significant drop in the number of injections, I think that this is a viable treatment. And, and will be approvable and certainly acceptable by patients. Uh, by the way, uh, one more word about the safety. In this uh, 1B for wet macular degeneration, uh, like most gene therapy trials, we have been giving patients a short course of oral prednisone about three weeks after they get the injection of the gene therapy to try to suppress inflammation. And none of the patients so far have had any inflammation. There's been no uh, side effects or, or any ill effects from the uh, 
from the treatment so far. So that's the status. Uh, I, I think that we have a, a, a very exciting program in both wet and dry macular degeneration that, that uh, hopefully will address uh, an untreatable disease with a single injection that would be dry macular degeneration and reduce the treatment burden significantly for patients with wet macular degeneration. How has the news of, uh, of Spark and just the attention that gene therapy has received since the FDA approval, has that helped at all in... Uh in rounding up folks for clinical trials? I know you'd met, or mentioned early on that that's always a challenge. You didn't have to round up many, but uh, is the success of gene therapy, is it reaching patients at all? Is it, is it helping to elevate your, uh, your stature? I think it is. I think that, first of all, these patients, many of them are well-educated to the fact that there is no treatment for dry macular degeneration. And while there's pipeline drugs, again, a pellis, uh, and uh, allergans, bromidine, slow release are both in a phase three trial. These require multiple injections for the lifetime. So when given an option of having a potentially uh, beneficial treatment that requires one injection, uh, patients, uh, you know, it very much uh, are, are interested in that. Uh, patients who have wet macular degeneration in one eye and develop it in the second eye and have a promise of instead of needing injections every month or two, they may only need one or two injections over a period of a year. Uh, again, very exciting. And because of the great safety profile we've shown, it's not hard to recruit patients at all at this point for these trials. That's terrific. And uh, have you seen more clinical activity in this. I know you're, uh, one of your co-founders, uh, Dr. Elias Raquel, was at uh, Hawaiian Eye, and uh, he's quoted at least saying that there's more than a dozen retinal clinical trial studies underway uh, for gene replacement. Uh, is that number growing? Is that just been out there and uh, we're shining a light on it now? Or, or do you see more, more comp? First of all, there's a limited number of inherited retinal dystrophies that are probably going to lend itself to this approach. I think there's over 200 mutations that had been identified in retinitis pigmentosa. But I don't think it's going to be, you know, 200 different gene therapy trials for RP. Uh, their choroideremia, uh, Stargardt's disease, those are some of the other diagnoses that right now are under trial. Uh, the other problem, of course, is since all of these diseases are really quite rare, it's not as if you can support multiple trials for multiple companies trying to develop these therapies. So when you talk about uh, a large companies, then, you know, big pharma buying a company like Spark, it makes perfect sense because consolidation into one or two uh, single ocular gene therapy companies within an international reach and the ability to manufacture under, you know, one uh, is setting is, is really going to be, I, I think, the future of this. Uh, so, yeah, there, there are over a dozen trials. I think what you're going to see, though, is more trials looking at chronic diseases like dry macular degeneration, wet macular degeneration, diabetic retinopathy. I think we're going to see inevitably glaucoma trials as well when proper pathways are identified where a long-term release of a drug to the eye is going to be uh, beneficial to these patients. So I think that uh, the breakout is going to be into these chronic ocular diseases where uh, I think you will see more trials in, in multiple companies entering the fray. Great. And, and just a final question, uh, given, uh, again, Rotor's acquisition of Spark and Biogen's purchase of Nightstar, 
How do you anticipate that uh, that will impact Hamera going forward? I mean, it's it's always great to, to have these two players now who, who likely will be looking to accumulate these types of products going forward. Uh, it gives you a, a clearer path. Do you think this will help with fundraising and with uh, and with partnerships going forward? Absolutely. Uh, again, our industry, like a lot of industries, there there being the first one down the, the pipeline can be difficult because you're dealing with the unknown of the safety and the ability to get something like gene therapy through the FDA, forgetting about your mechanism of action for a second and all the other issues around it. Now that Spark solved that getting through the FDA, I think other companies are recognizing that the gene therapy part of this has been de-risked. And that that's what we're hearing over and over, which is, oh, yeah, gene therapy, everybody accepts that it's safe and effective for the eye. Now it's a matter of, you know, mechanism of action and in, in proving that that what we're doing is going to work. But from the perspective of interest, the interests are great right now. Everybody is looking to accumulate uh, gene therapy assets. There's been a great deal of interest uh, in helping to fund our phase two trial, which the FDA has 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 checked off on, and we hope to start soon. Uh, there's been a great deal of strategic interest too, and so that for us, it's a matter of deciding which deal is going to be the most beneficial in the long term for you know all the parties involved. Right, and is the uh, FDA approved phase two trial? Is that for uh, geographic atrophy or for uh... yes? For geographic atrophy. Okay, and do you have? And a, we hope to do a, a concurrent phase two in WebMD based on the results we're getting so far in the phase one. Terrific, excellent. Well, I appreciate your taking a few minutes and uh, for the insights, and uh, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Tom. Good to talk to you again. Well, that's a wrap. Thanks so much for joining us on this OIS podcast. Don't forget, OIS at ASCSRS is happening on May second in San Diego. Finally, please help out this podcast by subscribing by telling your friends, by sharing this podcast on your social media channels, and by letting us know how we're doing. You can find me on Twitter. I am at MedTechTom. Or you can email me. My email address is tom at healthg.com. That's the word health, followed by the letters egy.com. Healthg is the producer of this podcast, of the OIS events, and many, many other great conferences and podcasts. Go to healthag.com to check them all out. And tune in next week for another great tale of innovation on the OIS podcast.